is um, new work, um, and it stems from my current book project examining the interrelated worlds, discourses, and spaces of video games, indigenous dispossession, and North American colonial racial capitalism. Much of my thought for the project began well before the pandemic shifted the relevancy of video games from their vectors of white supremacist, misogynistic investments and, and harassments to the almost utopian spaces of socially distanced connection for all of us, essential and non, but especially for queer of color, black and indigenous survivability. In the course of the COVID shutdown, some critics suggested that the frontier nostalgic campfires and Rockstar's Red Dead Redemption's online game were more conducive to conference calls and online work meetings than Skype or Zoom, while others found ways to hold graduations, then weddings, then holiday celebrations, and the charmingly extractive, capitalistic, and debt imperial new horizons of Nintendo's Animal Crossing. And even political candidates took to inner sloth's game of intruder sabotage mayhem among us to get out the vote in the lead up to the most recent and highly contested US presidential election. Well, before the pandemic, Eric Zimmerman had already written a manifesto declaring the 21st century, the quote unquote Luddock century, marked by the free play of information that would inevitably usher in what he refers to as an era of games. And Nick Dyer Witherford and Greg DePuter suggested that those games themselves could only be understood as the paradigmatic media, media of empire. Empire, they write, quote, is flush with power and wealth, yet close to chaos. This is the context in which we place virtual games, unquote. From the horizon of the fast approaching one year anniversary of pandemic shutdowns, economic collapse, and an almost unimaginable scale of loss attributable to COVID-19, after a summer of abolitionist protests against anti-Black police brutality and murder, and after a winter defined by climate change and critical power grid and state infrastructure failures, all just within uh, North America, it is not clear anymore whether it is information that is at play in this new century or US empire itself. In many ways, the question of an empire that is now in play might loom large in this moment where the hegemony of the United States' global power teeters on the verge of almost inevitable collapse against the backdrop of claims that it either needs to be made great again or is in fact finally back. But it is also one that is hard yet to answer given all we can know or not know about the precarity of the present and the impossibility of the future. With the truth and fact of information at play and the rise of conspiracy theories and white supremacist nationalism and insurrection enabled by the algorithmic homophily of social media networks and online communities, how video games as a related social and digital medium emerge as cultural and discursive objects continues to be relevant for how they reflect the ways through which settler societies imagine and then narrate themselves. Video game studies, however, has been haunted by the role narrative plays or does not in the structure of games, with a range of critical voices and disciplines offering contradictory, sometimes contentious arguments. As a debate, it is at this point often evoked as a cautionary tale of ordinary or disciplining um, reposts, an overstated parable of two entrenched camps fighting on the hill of narratology versus ludology when it is not just outright dismissed as an irrelevant irrelevantly outdated fray from the frontier shootouts of early video game studies. At the risk of being retrograde, I continue to return to this founding question of the relationship video games have to narrative and story as a necessary framing starting point, if only because it signals the stakes for what a critical gaming studies concerned with understanding the present moment might look like in conversation with critical indigenous studies, settler colonial studies, queer studies, and critiques of colonial racial capitalism. 
As a medium, video games are highly remediated objects in search of the critical theory through which to analyze them, with books, photography, film, and te television evoked as precursors that are quickly surpassed in the shift to games as machinic, informatic, coded and platformed material technologies indebted to histories of embodied play as much to the visual narrative and audio cultures of those prior media. They are conspicuously capitalistic, militaristic, corporate and imperial. Even so, video games as, de as designed and played objects continue to emphasize story and narrative as constitutive of world building, immersion and representational logics. Given the fierce attachment white and masculinist communities have had to video games in the North American and Pacific settler colonies and the maintenance of, a, of certain kinds of fandoms over others, scholars in the field of video game studies find themselves having to constantly qualify their interventions as they articulate video games as simultaneously exceptional and mundane as objects of love and pleasure as mass produced within global supply chains of cutting edge te technological development, militarism, and as run-of-the-mill pop cultural playgrounds, sometimes untouched by the ideological concerns of the present, to negotiate the demand that video games be framed as outside cultural and political critique on the one hand, and positioned as a legitimate art form on the other. Indeed, and for some, there's been a sense that video games and gamers are easy targets for moral panics, ranging from gun violence to white supremacist and misogynistic violence, that cultural theorists themselves sometimes supposedly perpetuate every time they critique a grain for its representation of empire, colonialism, capitalism, race, gender, and or sexuality. Still, according to Soraya Murray, quote, video games represent powerful invocations of the lived world in playable form, which offer insights into the core fears, fantasies, hopes, and anxieties of a given culture in a specific cultural context, unquote. As invocations of the lived world in playable form, Video games become a site through which to interrogate core questions that circulate around what li that lived and playable world enables and for whom. Elsewhere, Murray posits a caution about the actual work post-colonial criticisms of video games conceivably do in the circulation of the neoliberal university by pointing to how, quote, critical studies may fall into the trap of institutionalization, generating analysis as the products of acad academia's neoliberal turn, unquote. The concern, of course, is that performing, codifying, and institutionalizing critiques of video games for what they, en they enact at the embodied level of play within the context of ongoing settler colonialism, anti-Blackness, gendered violence, racial capitalism, and imperialism merely serves the diversity agenda of the neoliberal academy toward inclusion without radically transforming any of the structures of power. Given the risks that means for Murray, engaging games with an eye toward a public good by intervening in, quote, public debates as a counter discourse to the prevailing narrative, which is ethically anemic, unquote. For me, the questions that form the heart of my larger project about are not, sorry, are not about correcting inaccurate representations toward doing race, gender, and, and indigeneity in video games somehow decolonially better. Rather, I'm concerned with understanding how the discursive logics of dispossession circulate within the public cultures of settler colonialism and racial capitalism, how those logics shape what it is we can know and not know, be and not be, achieve and fail, and finally, how temporality, materiality, structure, and space all conform within video games to maintain regimes of violence and dispossession at the intersectional levels of narrative and play. 
Throughout my analyses of video games, I repeatedly evoke Patrick Wolf's formulate pronouncement that settler colonialism is, quote, a structure, not an event, unquote. It is a quote that has come to signal in shorthand axiom the settler colonial turn within critical theory. And Wolf's words have the grace of being both simple and straightforward in their delineation of definition. And because Wolf pinpoints settler colonialism as structural, he invites scholars who follow him to think carefully about what it means to engage in structuralist critiques of law, politics, culture, governance, and power. One of the things that continues to fascinate me, though, is how, in attempting to cordon video games off from literary and cinematic reading practices, theorists in the field insist instead on the necessity of the materiality of object and structure. As Christopher Paul observes in his analysis of to the toxic meritocracy of video games, quote, thinking de deeply about the structure of games, both how they are built and the stories they tell, articulates the terms on which players play games, unquote. To study video games as structures means remembering the invisible materiality of code, algorithms, and procedures that lie behind and beneath the visual, the narrative, and the representational. Code, presumably, is not interpretable at all, but it is rather a structure that enacts a world by running real time in the background to create the conditions and rules necessary for play in the first place. But here is where the narrative components of games still matter. And I want to argue that given how story continues to haunt video games, the same way machines and code haunt a novel such as Mark Z. Danielowski's House of Leaves, video games should be read as structures comprised prim primarily of events, whether cutscene, quick time, or other forms of event that propel the neoliberal fiction that the agent of self is capable of transformative action within the constraints of play. And those events, like the code itself as Ruha Benjamin's race after technology so well documents are steeped in settler colonial misogynistic and anti-black ideologies. So despite all the proclamations that, that the question of whether games tell stories is dead, the debate continues to reanimate anytime a game emerges to push the bar of what games might achieve as playable narrative worlds. And even Fortnite has been celebrated for innovating how story might be told now. And after its 10th season ended with a black hole devouring the entire game world and the players and their inventories along with it. As a subgenre within video games, games, survival horror depends on narrative as well as aesthetics and atmosphere to produce the subjective horror of having to navigate on an on-screen avatar through constant precarity towards survivability. There are two games that I want to look at more closely for the remainder of this talk. The first is Supermassive Games Overlook AAA 2015 release for the PlayStation 4 entitled Until Dawn, marketed as an, quote, unpredictable and dynamically adaptive story, unquote, that uses, quote, innovative choice mechanics and the butterfly effect interface, unquote. Until Dawn puts the player in control of eight young adults as they reconnect a year after the tragic disappearance and presumed death of twin sisters, Hannah and Beth Washington. Rather than presenting players with what Eve Tuck and C. Ree suggest is the fundamental disservice of US horror films that the quote, heroes are innocent and that the ghouls are the trespassers, unquote. Until Dawn attempts to narratively transform the possibilities of horror stories by first telling us that most, if not all of the playable characters in the game are in fact guilty in the events that led to the death of the twins, and then telling players that their choices and ability to hit the right buttons and the right sequence at the right time will determine who survives the night. If you make the quote unquote right choices and button presses, it is possible to save all but one of the main characters a twist on the cliched modes of horror movie characters that include the jock, the token minority, the final girl, and the blonde. 
According to fan lore around the game, the final script had over 10,000 pages of dialogue. The game sets up at least three different possible horror film homages for the players to survive, the slasher, the mystery thriller, and the horrific monster, and then lets the player manage exploration of the massive Washington family estate, a partially collapsed tin and radium mine, an abandoned sanatorium, and the remnants of a hotel underneath the family estate built on Blackwood Mountain as it settles, and that pun is intended, into the story it wants to tell through all the classic jump scares and misdirects endemic to cinematic narrative horror. Until Dawn's cast of actors include Rami Malek, Hayden Pinatare, Nicole Bloom, and Jordan Fisher, who provide motion capture, voice act, motion capture voice acting and just the right amount of racial and gender diversity to fulfill neoliberal representational algorithms for a game released the, following, the year following Gamergate's attack on women, as well as trans and racialized players in the gaming community. More, set in Pacific Northwest Canada, likely somewhere in Alberta close to the border with British Columbia, the game tries to integrate the horror of a wintry wilderness mountain sublime with historical and cultural authenticity. The result is that though the game acknowledges indigenous presence through its mishmash of Cree and Pacific Northwest coastal cultural artifacts scattered throughout as collectibles, and in fact relies on that presence to construct the quote unquote butterfly effect mechanic drawn from chaos theory that supposedly innovates how games might finally let players play story. That presence is radically stereotypical, often outright fabricated and ultimately illegible despite its hyper visibility in the game. Indigeneity does, does not do anything in the game beyond signal settler anxieties about the past, about multicultural sensitivity, about guilt and about ownership and control of the land. For example, Josh, who is voiced by Rami Malek, insists on calling his blonde friend Chris Cochise throughout the early scenes of the game as a toxic dig at Chris's masculinity and his timidity around, quote unquote, the lovely ladies, and that's from that dialogue in the game. According to the game's online wiki assembled by fans, not only does Josh's nickname for Chris refer, quote, to the name of a Native American leader, unquote, it, quote, co coincidentally ties in with the Native American aspect of the game, unquote. Finally, the wiki helpfully adds that, according to Urban Dictionary, quote, Josh's name for Chris means badass, unquote. As for more tie-ins with what fans name, quote, the Native American aspect of the game, unquote, the entire butterfly effect derives, players are told, on an in-game menu screen from, quote, indigenous tribes, unquote, who, quote, believe that butterflies brought dreams in premonition, unquote. And this, again, is from the game. Scattered throughout the game are remnants of totem poles that serve as collectible prophecies and warnings that foreshadow possible death scenarios for each of the playable characters. If you successfully find all the prophecy totems for the five poles named death, guidance, loss, danger, and fortune, you are rewarded with a short film entitled, quote, The Events of the Past, that finally reveals the truth about the fictive Blackwood Mountain. That mystery players eventually learn from an unnamed character referred to as flamethrower guy, an in-game character who... Um, like his name suggests, has a flamethrower, who is voiced and motion captured by Larry Fessenden, who is a veteran horror filmmaker um, who also co-wrote the script for the game, is that the original indigenous inhabitants considered the mountain sacred, but abandoned it after settlers desecrated it in the 19th century for mining, mining for tin and, and radium. Then in the 1950s, a group of miners survived a cave-in by turning to cannibalism in the darkness of the tunnels and in the process released the curse of the Wendigo spirits that swirl the mountain and call it home. 
In the final beats of the three minute film, Flamethrower Guy explains that, it, that the night of Hannah and Beth's disappearance, he was hunting his grandfather's nemesis, the ancient Wendigo named Makapichu, who was itself tracking the twins for food. Building off the context of this short film, the final, final reveal of the game's source of horror is that one of the twins, Hannah, turned to cannibalism out of desperation, ate her dead twin in the collapsed mine to survive starvation, and is now one of the Wendigos haunting the game and attacking the eight playable characters in search of revenge for the prank they played on her. Cree literary scholar Dallas Hunt reads similar science fiction and horror genre narratives through Marjorie Fee's discussion of totem transfer stories. Such stories, he explains, center on white settlers encountering the remnant of a forgotten tribe, receiving some kind of gift, and then in effect becoming the rightful heirs to that tribe's land and cultural patrimony. The totems in these narratives, Hunt observes, quote, are metonyms for the land and indigenous claims to it. So in gifting the totem, the indigenous peoples are symbolically releasing their holds over the lands, unquote. And until dawn, flamethrower guy tells the playable characters that he doesn't, quote, take kindly to you kids coming up here to my mountain, unquote. A mom moment in game that serves at least two purposes. First, to metonymically acknowledge Fessenden's real life and literal authorial role in creating the fictive mountain for the game. And second, to signal some prior generational totem transfer that must have occurred for flamethrower guy's grandfather that then transfers to the protagonists of the game when they receive his journal after he is beheaded by Wendigos in the scenes immediately following her, his first speaking appearance in the game. The totem collecting mechanic of Until Dawn serves a similar and literal transfer function, where abandoned totems are scattered throughout the game's locations for players to find, collect, and in collecting gain the power and knowledge to affect the outcome of survival for each of the characters. Settler co-optations of Wendigo, according to Hunt, serve a similar totem transference effect. The entire game then traffics in a hyper-visible iteration of what Manu Vimalasheri, Juliana Hupagiz, and Alyosha Goldstein identify as a colonial unknowing about the indigenous tribes the game symptomatically evokes only to immediately disappear again and again through stereotype and fictive nonsense. Nowhere is this dynamic more evident than in one of the small pieces of evidence about the mystery man that players discover on a table in one of the rooms of the sprawling Washington family estate. In a 2013 letter addressed to a Dr. C.J. Swaffham, Race and Ethnicity Department, 183 Haskell Hall, 613 Amsterdam Road, Vancouver, BC, Josh and the twins' mother, Melinda Washington, expresses concern about, unquote, unfortunate problems that have plagued the Washington Lodge, including, quote, graffiti, people sleeping in the outbuildings, unquote. It's good to know, she writes, to the presumably settler authority on Indians in the race and ethnicity department of some unnamed academic institution, quote, that the tribe still feels an attachment to the land here. This is their ancestral home after all, unquote. The letter goes on to indicate that she plans to send a donation to their, quote, elder council, unquote, concluding the letter with the observation that, quote, healing the wounds of the past won't be easy, but I feel it's a step that is necessary, unquote. Players find the letter early in the game, and it is one source of misdirect, hinting that the mystery man and psycho also stalking the game are possibly disgruntled, unhoused, and unhomed Indians stalking the mountain in the hopes of getting their land back in an act of misguided revenge-seeking against the Washington family. Indianness is evoked in Until Dawn as a prior source of knowledge, an original totem as land transfer, and as a possible but ultimately non-existent threat. 
Nowhere in the game do players interact with contemporary indigenous peoples and no way do players encounter anything culturally accurate in any of the evocations of indigeneity that appear throughout the game. And they're left with the re reconciliatory gestures of monetary gifting as a just compensation for ongoing settler occupation. It is a move that like the state sanctioned modes of reconciliation Glenn Coulthard critiques that becomes, quote, temporarily framed as the process of individually and collectively overcoming the harmful legacy left in the wake of the past abuse, while leaving the present structure of colonial rule largely unscathed, unquote. And what is perhaps the most troubling aspect of the game's racial and colonial animosities, it turns out that Josh has, quote, unquote, gone off his meds, again, from language from the game, in his grief over the loss of his sisters, and is in the middle of a psychotic break as he seeks revenge for his sister's disappearance, with an elaborate plot to torture his friends in punishment for what they did to Hannah the previous year. The game constructs the Washington family as quintessentially white, rich, and settler established, and the casting of Rami Malek in the lead role, and as the true human threat preying on his friends, could be read simply as a liberal gesture of colorblind casting in an industry that centers and prioritize, pr prioritizes white masculinity to a fault. Given that the rampant settler colonial and ableist discourses evoked throughout the game's horrorscape, I would suggest additionally that the game transits indigeneity into North African arrivant as part of an inescapable horror plot it wants to construct as a deflection of guilt and innocence about the violences of colonial racial capitalism at the core of the game's narrative mechanics. Malik is at this point an established Egyptian-American actor no, best known for his Oscar award-winning portrayal of Freddie Mercury in Bohemian Rhapsody three years after Until Dawn's release. And his racial, ethnic, and indigenous indeterminacy functions in the game to shift accountability for the violences of colonialism from the white victims of the Wendigo spirit to the mad immigrant arrivant who threatens to upend the totem transfers the game imagines. Malik's Josh is not is the only unsavable and irredeemable playable character in the game. After the final credits roll and the game tallies who the player managed to keep alive, depending on their choices, they might find Josh still stuck in the collapsed mind, slowly degrading in his madness into possession by a Wendigo spirit. Unlike his sister, Hannah, whose Wendigo transformation is presented as a tragic turn the playable characters constantly apologize to her for, Josh's possession is the continuation of horror at the site of deserved punishment, degenerate madness, and failed civility and settlement. He attacks the park rangers sent to recover him, and the game goes to black on their screams as he tears them apart and devours them. The second game I want to discuss is Giant Sparrow Annapurna's 2017 title, What Remains of Edith Finch. Hailed as a masterful achievement in video game as vignette anthology, the game beat out Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, Assassin's Creed Origins, and Super Mario Odyssey for the BAFTA's 2018 Best Game Award. It also received Best Narrative from Game Developers Choice Awards and was named Games for Change's 2018 game with the best gameplay. Celebrated, it, celebrated for its ability to not only tell compelling stories through gameplay, but to inspire empathy by asking players to witness firsthand death and grief within a family through generations. What Remains of Edith Finch invites players to navigate through the precariously expanded Finch family house on Orcas Island, Washington State, uncover its secrets, and inhabit by entering to play the death scenes of each deceased family member of the cursed Finch family. 
quote, video games give players a chance to actualize subject positions, to become a new kind of person, which could make games a perfect place for experimentation, unquote, Christopher Paul writes. And for some, Edith Finch is a game that so, that so far comes closest to realizing that gamic possibility. For others, what remains of Edith Finch is nothing more than yet another glorified walking simulator in the vein of Gone Home or Firewatch. According to Ian Dallas, creative director for Giant Sparrow, Edith Finch is a game where, quote, each of the stories is really about what it means to be overwhelmed, unquote. Though the game is initially navigated through the first person shooter camera, hence the charge that it is at best a walking simulator, the game breaks convention with shooters and simulators alike by creating playable character studies that introduce different control mechanics to construct each of the playable aspects of the game. For instance, to learn how 10-year-old Molly Finch died, you enter the point of view of her childhood poisonous berry-induced delirium to become in progression of food chain hunters, a cat, an owl, a shark, and a tentacled Cthulhu-like monster ravenously devouring first birds and rabbits, and then seals and finally whole sailors. Or for Calvin Finch, you find yourself using both joysticks in tandem to swing your legs faster and faster until the swing you are on loops the top and you as Calvin fly off the edge of the cliff and into the ocean below. The game starts you out innocently enough on a ferry headed to Orcas Island. And as the title of the game recedes into the background to the sound of the ferry horn and balk, you gain control of the camera, look around and finally center on a journal entitled Edith Finch resting in your lap. With the press of a button and the flick of a joystick, the journal opens and Edith's voice reads the words on the page to you. Quote, a lot of this isn't going to make sense to you and I'm sorry about that, unquote. And then with another joystick turn of the page, Edith begins to tell you about her family tree, which is also the house, as you step into her POV. This mechanic of entering the nested POVs, point of views, perspectives of each of the dead Finch family members sets the stage for how you play the game, from peeping into eye holes drilled into the sealed mausoleum doors of the deceased family Finch family, Finch family members' bedrooms in the sprawling labyrinthine found object converted to living space home, to crawling through secret passages to find relics and remnants of treasured letters, photos, or mementos that then propel you headfirst into the playable final moments of each Finch as he or she is overwhelmed and then lost. The game creates a sense of the weird, the sublime, and the fantastic through the constant architectural and scopic disorientation of constantly looking with and through someone else's eyes. But in all of the game's strange intimacy, uncanny domesticity, and eerie invocation to share and the Finch family's grief, the game's overarching narrative is first and foremost one of lasting white settlement, in spite of its fragile overwhelm and unheimlich futurity. As you untangle the Finch origin story, you eventually learn about Patriarch Odin and his attempts to outrun the 500-year-old family curse that had him, after his wife's sudden, tragic, and unexpected death, sailing from Norway in 1937 to the San Juan Islands off the coast of Washington State with his ancestral house, daughter Edie, son-in-law son Sven, and granddaughter Molly in tow. Alas, and because of, the, because of the curse that limits the living finch to only, to only one, the house sinks not far, off, not far from shore with Odin inside. It is up to Sven and Eddie, 
to bury their dead patriarch on land and build their new home on Orcas Island, complete with a Finch family totem pole with Molly as owl on top that Sven carves not long before he dies trying to make a dragon slide for his son Walter's 12th birthday. Despite the constant attrition and subtraction of finches, somehow the house itself, as the structural manifestation of the settler death, death drive, consumes more and more space, expanding architecturally into treetops, looming out over the cliffs above the ocean and into subterranean caverns to enshrine this, the eccentric and insular family members on their way to death, and still somehow lasting settler continuance in the literal house as a settler colonial structure built event after event. It is no coincidence that multiple copies of Daniel Lowski's House of Leaves populate the many bookcases scattered throughout the Finch home. And while each of these pieces are fascinating in their own right, it is Lewis Finch's story and minigame that critics and players have found most unanimously, the, have almost unanimously found most compelling and innovative. Lewis is referenced early in the game as Edith's, Edith's older brother who worked at the local salmon cannery, and it is his death that compels their mother to finally flee the house with her only surviving child in the hopes of saving them both from the dreaded curse of unfortunate and untimely death. Despite the mention of him early in the game, Lewis's story is one of the final stories you play, and it is one of the longest and most realized. As you enter his edition at the top of the house, you find the living space of a pothead and gamer, complete with hookahs, sitar music, black light, retro game systems, and even a marijuana leaf poster. His bedroom has apparently been partially built from a repurposed boat, and upon crawling through its windshield to gain access, Edith remarks that Lewis's room, quote, smelled very, very familiar, unquote, that that smell was the only thing of him that's lingered still. Progressing further into the room, you eventually find a box of Lewis's belongings from the cannery with a letter addressed to his mother, Dawn, uh, Dawn Finch, on top of near his computer desk. Uh, when you pull the letter out and begin to read it, the gamic action triggers a voiceover shift from Edith to that of an older British female psychiatrist, writing to provide insight and explanation into Lewis's suicide. As you find yourself slipping from Edith's POV into Lewis's monotonous daily grind of beheading salmon at this cannery. When you finally have control of Lewis, you quickly acclimate to the controls as it becomes clear that your right joystick moves his right hand and arm as it feeds salmon into the mechanized guillotine that menacingly swooshes every time your hand comes near. Your labor as gameplay is to grab a salmon as soon as it arrives at your station, slide it into the slicer to your right, and then push it forward onto the conveyor belt so that it can move further down the line for processing. And then you grab the next and repeat. While you continue to push impending salmon through the motions in the rightward slide, Lewis's story continues to unfold through the narrator's voice. And soon a portion of the left side of the screen begins to change and encroach upon the space of the salmon station Lewis is working at this cannery. The narrator, narrator's voice pauses mid-sentence until you figure out that through trial and error that your left joystick now moves a video game-like avatar of Lewis on the left side of the screen as his mind starts to wander at work and his imagination takes over to create a fictional world to explore. Game critic Philippa War um, describes the central mechanic of Lewis's story as essentially a version of, quote, patting your head and rubbing your tummy, unquote, multitasking, as your right thumb continues feeding salmon into the slicer and your left thumb navigates the Lewis avatar through an increasingly elaborate fantasy realm. As a disaffected, not quite essential laborer and recovering addict, 
Lewis quickly loses himself in the fantasy he constructs as escape. Initially rendered in simple 2D graphics and as an old school RPG dungeon crawler with skeletons and bats. But as Lewis's left side world begins to intrude on his day job, the graphics shift, expand, and evolve, reflecting how video games themselves have evolved and expanded over the past 20 years until you are finally and fully recaptured in the 3D first-person camera that is the hallmark of this era's gaming achievement. In his imaginary role-playing game world, Lewis adopts a dog, composes songs, and starts a band. Meanwhile, in the real world, he stops speaking at the cannery, through, though his work never falters, and he is, we are assured, an efficient, reliable, productive, and model employee. His fantasies grow more elaborate as he realizes that his imaginary realm is his to do with as he wants, and so he holds an election for mayor that he runs for and then wins. He soon decides that local power is not enough, however, that there is more to experience in the gameplay world his wandering mind has dreamt up, and so he sets out on a voyage of discovery. As he sails up a river, he conquers and renames cities to New Louisville, St. Louis, and Minneapolis, um, all spelled um, with uh, his name L-E-W-I-S, in a mimetic reproduction of settlements on the Mississippi River. He eventually hears, the narrator explains, about either a beautiful prince or a handsome princess, and whether the player chooses the queer branch or the straight, both lead to his ascension to the throne of a settler monarchical world that he has created, with his own coronation at the end. That ending ultimately puts you back in control of Lewis at the cannery, where his mind has dissociated from his body, and you observe through his imaginative avatar the quote-unquote real-life Lewis's objective, abjectly robotic labor mutilating Sandman as he stands almost inanimately with his head bowed over his station. Ensconced in Lewis's imaginative point of view that desires the fulfillment of his quest to become sovereign, your final act as Lewis's avatar is to kneel and accept the crown. That moment of ascension is on rails, though, and you have no choice. Arriving at the end enacts Lewis's final act of refusal and leads to his suicidal beheading by the automated guillotine he has been feeding salmon to all along. With the final swoosh of the blade, Lewis's gameplay stops and you return to Edith, Edith still holding the letter in her hand in Lewis's room. According to War's analysis of Lewis's story, creative director Ian Dallas associated the state of Washington with salmon. Quote, it was both a literal presence and a symbolic one, she explains, encountered in supermarkets and local reservations, as well as its use in Native American art from the region. It was also a way of referencing one of the older themes of the game, the sublime horror of nature, unquote. And because salmon represent both Native Americans and the sublime horror of nature, that's the theme of the game, for the designers who worked on it, it is one of the only ways that indigenous presence makes its way into the physical and, and imaginative geographies of the games world and, it, and its 500 year old curse of settlement the game allows players to play. For the game, the sublime horror of nature equates indigeneity to salmon, to land, to ocean, and to the rest of the natural world in expansive succession. Though the game provides no real background on the game setting, Orcas Island is part of the San Juan Islands in the Haro Strait between Washington State and British Columbia, and it is part of the traditional lands of the Coast Salish peoples, primarily Lummi. Salmon canneries in the Pacific Northwest and into Alaska are sites of extractive colonial racial capitalism dependent upon indigenous dispossession. And for much of the 19th century into early 20th century, Asian migrant and seasonal labor. The invention of a mechanized salmon butchering machine such as the one Lewis operates notoriously displaced Asian workers at the beginning of the 20th century and it was nicknamed the Iron Chink. 
Within the colonial unknowing and uncanny contours of what remains of Edith Finch, those colonial and racial intimacies and formations are referenced without acknowledgement, yet their presence serves a stark discursive function. Though Lewis Finch and his sister Edith are presented in game as assumed, initially presumed white, similar to how Shell is assumed male at the beginning of Portal, players learn that they are in fact mixed race South Asian when it is revealed that Dawn's husband and their father was Sanjay Kumar, a relief worker, uh, a relief aid worker who died tragically in an earthquake somewhere in the global South in 2020, 20, sorry, 2002 when Edith, Edith was three. It might be tempting to read this diversification of the Finch family through what Lisa Nakamura refers to as, quote, gaming's cruel optimism, unquote, the neoliberal multicultural attachment to the hope that simply including racial, gender, and sexual difference in games will somehow transform the often violently racist, homophobic, and misogynistic structure of them by the sheer fact that they will have been made to be inclusive. And certainly the branching path of Lewis's conquering journey upstream that lets him choose either a prince or princess as reward serves that inclusive queer gesture that does not make any structural difference to white conquest or how the game plays out. But there is something, something recursively uncanny within that representational logic at the site of indigenous dispossession and the racialization of labor and disability. Reading those 10 to 15 minutes of Lewis's story through what Ico Day identifies as alien capital, capital, a triangulation of racial colonial capitalism that depends upon, quote, patterns of indigenous decimation and dispossession, racialized labor recruitment and exploitation, and immigrant restriction and internment, unquote. It is possible to see how the game reproduces differential racializations for Asians, Blacks, and Natives within the context of white settler supremacy, where, quote, Asians have personified the abstract dimensions of capitalism through labor time, unquote, precisely because their, quote, identification with, with a mode of efficiency was aligned with a perverse temporality of domestic and social reproduction, unquote. And that's from Ico Day. What this means within the context of Edith Finch is that Lewis's abjection is pure as pure mechanized labor that the gamer performs as part of gameplay replicates the iron cheek uh, guillotine machine that he operates and then and that supposedly makes his salmon processing more efficient. Lewis becomes abstract value in his non-racialized identification in game. Moreover, this condition of perverse domestic and re social reproduction haunts Sanjay Kumar as he is absorbed into the Finch family tree and its curse without leaving much more than a sketched trace in his daughter's journal, along with a smiling fa family photo and newspaper clip clipping in his wife's room. His children bear his wife's maiden name, and his subjectivity is not one the game allows the player to ever imagine or inhabit. His perverse sexuality and perverse temporality manifest in his disappearance from settler presence in Washington state. He is already elsewhere migrant or arrivant or never having arrived in the present of the game before he ever dies. And his children assimilate into the family, into the Finch family name, the Finch curse and the Finch house, all to serve Finch settlement. Within the context of this ongoing Finch settlement on Orcas Island, Lewis's imaginative world sets him out as conquering settler hero, renaming the major cities along the Mississippi after himself in the game, precisely because his real life is presented as completely opposite. He was sent into rehab to deal with his pot smoking and then to the cannery by his white mother to be responsible. He has no friends beyond those he invents in his head, and he eventually takes his own life using the machinery of the gory, blood-soaked, abstract labor value that he has become in the day in and day out of the efficient salmon processing in the cannery. 
In her forthcoming book on the differential racializations of settler colonial capitalism that produced the canneries as sites of Asian men and native women's labor in the Pacific Northwest and Alaska specifically, Juliana Hupagis builds on Day's analysis of Asian perverse temporality within labor regimes of settler colonial racial capitalism to theorize that, quote, their temporal perversion is enacted as a spatial failure that is an inability to remain residents or become settlers, unquote, that postpones settler time, even as the triadic structures of racialization and exclusion further the extractive and dispossessive regimes of domination of indigenous peoples and lands. Lewis's own perverse temporality, sexuality, and spatiality then, no matter what romantic path the player chooses to follow, and despite Lewis's own fantasies, echoes his father's and signifies how the Asian laborer is unable to settle the land or remain within the discursive realms of white settlement. As a white, as, sorry, as a South Asian mixed race woman voiced by a white actor, the titular Edith's unknown racialization serves a slightly different function. Not long before she enters Lewis's room, Edith tells the player that she is pregnant, but it is not until after her mother dies of a prolonged illness at the end of the game that the player learns that the you she has been addressing throughout the, the game is not the player, but in fact her unborn son. The game ends dramatically with that son and you as player emerging from Edith's Edith's birth channel, when it finally becomes clear that the whole game, and sorry, these are spoilers, was actually re his reading of the journal Edith had left behind as he travels to Orcas Island to visit his mother's grave years after she died giving birth to him in 2017, the same year the game was released. On the final page of the journal, she writes the following to her son she never gets to meet. Quote, this is where your story begins. I'm sorry I won't be there to see it. It's a lot to ask but I don't want you to be sad that I'm gone. I want you to be amazed that any of us ever had a chance to be here at all. Good luck, Edith." Unquote. Projecting a settler futurity and amazement at the chance to be here at all for her son as the last of the Finches, Edith's role in the story is to suture the racial and gender discourses of colonial racial capitalism to the spatial and temporal project of lasting white settlement against perversion and dissolution. But the promise that the house and structure of settlement remain that it is still only the beginning of the story and not its end. What remains for Edith Finch is another version of a totem transfer to you as her son, potentially fulfilling the promise of an enduring future tense settlement that she and her brother as arrivants and all the white and all the white finches before them could not achieve themselves. In writing about indigenous futurities that survived the horrors settlers orchestrate through genocidal settlement, settlement dispossessive land grabs and anthropocentric climate disasters, Dallas Hunt close reads Cree Métis filmmaker Dennis Goulet's 2013 short film, Wakening, as a text that projects an indigenous futurity beyond those imagined by settlers. Centering the Cree cultural hero, Wasagachak, within a bleak dystopian police state and an urban occupation of indigenous territory in ruins, and where possession of any remaining lands is defined through strict statutes of legal citizenship rights in an implied totalitarian state, the film imagines possible forms of indigenous storied resistance that could emerge when Wasajichak releases Wiktigo, here evoked through the culturally grounded Cree name for what settlers reproduce as Wendigo, from a dilapidated theater in one of the buildings that remain standing. The occupiers, they tricked you, Wittigo, Wisajichak tells them. This is no, no palace, this is your prison. The occupiers are more feared than you are, Wittigo. The film ends when Wisajichak leaving, 
leaving the theater, not knowing if Wittigo has heard or understood, is confronted by two occupation soldiers waiting outside. And the next scene, Wittigo appears behind them. And then with sounds of them being torn apart bodily and then eaten, the camera centers Visajitak's horrified yet resolved and ultimately pleased response. The film ends with the promise of Vitigo unleashed on the occupiers as indigenous decolonial resurgence, upending settler appropriations of Wendigo stories, such as the one found in Nintel Dawn, and reanimating the horror settlers experience with the thought of settlement's end as a counter narrative of indigenous uprising and resistance. The film hunt suggests resist well, the, the film Hunt suggests resists white settler fragility, what he calls white settler fragility, and asks settler audiences to, quote, sit with or dwell in these affective spaces to engage with narratives that, can, that consider the possibilities of one's disappearance, narratives that indigenous peoples have had to deal with for a very long time, unquote. What remains to be seen is whether video games will ever let players dwell in and deal with the affective spaces of disappearance that indigenous peoples know intimately, or whether the empire in play will continue to produce settler endurance as the only spaces of narrative and grief allowed. Thanks. Thank you so much. That was such an, uh, a, a brilliant talk. and. Um... <laughs>